Well, today, uh, if you don't know, it's called uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It is uh, observed every year about this time uh, in observance of the Supreme Court decision on January 22nd, 1973. Some churches are observing it this Sunday. Some will observe it next Sunday. And on that date in 1973, uh, that decision, Roe versus Wade, was made. The nine justices made the decision that abortion was legal in every state of the Union, and that's what we've lived with since then. By some estimates, uh, there has been an estimated 50 million abortions in this country since then. Uh, that is the Holocaust of the womb. And uh, it is just staggering to think that uh, that surpasses the Holocaust of World War II, of Pol Pot's regime in Cambodia, and so on. And uh, that's where we live. And as I was reading and preparing this week, uh, I read an article by Russell Moore. It was a, actually a blog post. And I'm going to spend the time to read it to you because he expresses how I feel and how I approach Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's not just about the unborn, but it's also the danger of euthanasia, about the aged, about uh, those who uh, do not meet our society's standards of life, according to some people. Uh, but Russell Moore, Dr. Russell Moore, is at, uh, uh, on staff on, uh, on the faculty of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a prolific writer and a good thinker. I've heard him speak in Chicago and in Louisville, and uh, I read his blogs once in a while. But his blog this time is entitled, he wrote this a couple of years ago, and I've had it in my files since then. Uh, the title of his blog is, Why I Hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Why I Hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and that hopefully grabs your attention as it did mine. And now I'm quoting, reading from his blog. Russell Moore writes, Don't get me wrong, the call to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ is a joy. Nothing is more thrilling than opening the word of God to the people of Christ week by week. But it provokes my spirit to preach the sanctity of human life emphasis on a Sunday morning. He goes on to state, I don't hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I think it, somehow, unbiblical, no, indeed, the entire canon of Scripture throbs with God's commitment to the fatherless, to the widows, his wrath at the shedding of innocent blood. I don't hate it because I think it's inappropriate, just as every Lord's Day should be Easter with the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus and Christmas with the announcement of the incarnation of Christ. So every Lord's Day should highlight the worth and dignity of human life. I hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I'm reminded we, that we have to say things to one another that human beings should not have to say. Mothers shouldn't kill their children. Fathers shouldn't abandon their babies. No human life is worthless regardless of skin, color, age, disability, or economic status. The very fact that these things must be proclaimed is a reminder of the horrors of this present darkness. One sanctity of human life Sunday morning, as I opened the Bible to preach, I looked out and caught the eye of my sons. I prayed that their children wouldn't have to hear a sermon against abortion and euthanasia. I prayed that my grandchildren and great-grandchildren would grow up in an age when abortion is, as the Feminist for Life organization put it some years ago, an age, or excuse me, not just illegal, but unthinkable. 
I prayed for my yet-to-be-conceived but not yet-to-be-conceived great-grandchildren that Sanctity of Human Life Sunday would seem as unnecessary to them as the, quote, reality of gravity emphasis Sunday. I hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I'm reminded that as I'm preaching, there are babies warmly nestled in wombs who won't be there tomorrow. I'm reminded that there are children, maybe even blocks from my pulpit, who will be slapped, punched, and burned with cigarettes before nightfall. I'm reminded that there are elderly men and women languishing away in loneliness, their lives pronounced to be a waste. But I also love Sanctity of Human Life Sunday when I think about the fact that I serve in a congregation with ex-orphans all around, adopted into loving families. I love to reflect on the men and women who serve every week in pregnancy centers for women in crisis. I love to see men and women who have aborted babies find their sins forgiven, even this sin, and their conscience cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll always need Christmas. We'll always need Easter. But I hope, praise Lord, that someday the sanctity of human life day is unnecessary. Amen. Yeah. Uh, So today, as we observe this uh, infamous date in our own country's history, it's interesting that we come to this passage, this one Christian character uh, quality in 2 Peter. If you take your copy of Scripture and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, we're continuing our study of these eight character traits of a Christian. I think the whole issue of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday and the issue that we're even talking about it is the fact that it's primarily not a social issue, it's primarily not a political issue, but it is primarily a spiritual issue in our land. And one thing I was reminded of is in Thessalonians, uh, when Paul is writing and talking about Uh, the coming age of lawlessness. In other words, he's uh, telling us about the coming tribulation. He talks in chapter 2 of second letter of Thessalonians. In verse 7, he says that, uh, excuse me, uh, do not remember that while I was still with you, it's verse 5, I was telling you these things. He's talking about this man of lawlessness that will be revealed, the Antichrist, during the tribulation. And you know what restrains him now, for in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Uh, The restrainer is the Holy Spirit of God. And this is one of the proofs of the context that the church of Jesus Christ will not go through the tribulation. Uh, Because after chapter 3 in the book of Revelation... Will not go through tribulation, excuse me. In the book of Revelation, by chapter 3, that's the last time we see the church. And after that, all hell is unleashed, if you read Revelation and understand some of these uh, descriptions of uh, the, the wrath of God being poured out. But we, the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Now think logically and biblically, theologically here, is that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And as a composite, the church, the worldwide church, is the residence of the Holy Spirit. And if he's the restrainer of evil, he uses us to restrain evil. You may not think of yourself as one who restrains evil, but the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through you as we are receptive and yielded and surrendered to God's work in our life, we are used to restrain evil. 
I think about my own life, my own personal testimony. If God would not have invaded my life, opened my eyes to the truth of everlasting life, who knows what I would have been. I'm pretty sure I would not be married. I'm pretty sure I'd be an alcoholic, maybe even dead, and quite a a battler, Uh, you know, the logger in me. And uh, God has restrained evil in my life, and he continues to do so. So my family is the beneficiary of what the Holy Spirit, what God is doing in my life personally. And each one of us probably would have a story like that. We don't know for sure what we would have been without Christ. But I don't believe it would have been a good show, believe me. And so we come to this passage today, and you think about uh, being a restrainer of evil. And I think of these qualities that the Apostle uh, Peter lists for us. Remember as he begins, he's greeting Christians. Uh, Remember that the the New Testament is basically written to Christians, to the church, other than the Gospel of John, which is a gospel tract, if you will, written to everybody, to unbelievers. But Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 1, to those who have received the faith is the same kind as ours. In other words, fellow believers, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to every, everything to, pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And he goes on to say that now for this very reason also applying all diligence to your faith supply. And he goes on to list these uh, eight characteristics, faith being the first one. Uh, So the Apostle Peter here is reminding us that our position is secure. If you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit has given you the power and the ability to live lives of godliness every day. Now, obviously, we don't all always live lives of godliness. We have those sins in our life, those issues that we deal with. And I need to remind you again, the flesh is not redeemed yet. Even though positionally we are in Christ We have a future and a hope. We have the assurance of salvation. We still have the issue of the flesh to deal with. And I don't know about you, but my flesh wants what I want when I want it, okay? And I think we all wrestle with that. And that's what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7 in the second half. I don't do what I should do, and I do what I don't want to do. And he's detailing very clearly that uh, our flesh fights against our spirits in that aspect. So he goes on the list, and we've been looking at each one of these character traits, and uh, faith, supply moral excellence, and your moral excellence, knowledge, and your knowledge, self-control, and your self-control, perseverance, and your perseverance, godliness, which we looked at last week, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. It's interesting, isn't it, that the last two characteristics in this list, some call it a virtue list, Uh, that the Holy Spirit is providing us these character traits. The last two have to do the focus on love, the love of one another. It's really focusing the end of this this list is uh, how we treat one another and how we portray the world, how we uh, portray Christ to the world. And uh, this is the climax of this chain of virtues, if you will, or character traits. Peter exhorted us to pursue brotherly kindness, to pursue Philadelphia is the word, and we'll talk about that in a moment. The focus is on love between fellow believers and on family-like devotion to one another. 
that should characterize the Christian community, and then that flows out to the world around us. In 1929, uh, Cole Porter wrote a hit song for his musical entitled Wake Up and Dream, in which he asked, the title of the song is, is what is this thing called love? And in the, the lyrics in that song is, what is this thing called love? Ask the Lord in heaven above, what is this thing called love? The song really had long legs because over the, over the last 50, 60 years, there are many singers who have uh, covered this work of Cole Porter's. Nat King Cole, Billie Holiday, Frank Sinatra, Wynton Marsalis, even Iggy Pop had a version of this song. Uh, I think the reason it lasted so long is because it asks a question that every thoughtful person in our culture would ask, really, what is this thing called love? We read the words, we read this, uh, this uh, concept or this characteristic of brotherly kindness. Some of your versions have brotherly love in there. And then the last virtue, which we'll cover next week, is love itself. Uh, but Paul told the Roman church that we must not owe anything except the debt of love. He told the Galatian church uh, that the evidence of God's working in your life was, first of all, love for others. And then we know the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, seems to be uh, quoted at every wedding. Uh, Paul says that whatever gifts you have, you can exercise them. But if you do it without the motive of love, those gifts accomplish nothing, is what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13. They make you nothing, and no matter how impressive your spiritual gifts, your ministry, your service to your church and to others is, you gain nothing at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. So the question is an important thing. What is this thing called love? Cole Porter asked the question many, many decades ago. You know, as I look at uh, the Greek language in our New Testaments, I think the early Greeks were confused about what is love also because they had many words, at least five different words that we translate into the English word love. The most common word was phileo, which is part of the word we're looking at today. And it describes a garden variety of love or a family devotion kind of love. Uh, it's for your friends, people in your family, your country. And uh, we see this word tied in this passage uh, to Delphia, which is Philadelphia. And we know Philadelphia, the city of love, is the direct translation uh, of that word. And we also have the word anthropos, which means which we get a philanthropy from. And so Peter is using this word in a distinctive Christian fashion, that the Christian community, that all of us are brothers and sisters. Why? Because we are blood brothers and sisters in the blood of Christ. Christ died for all of us, and we are fitted together. One of the images is of a temple, and we're like uh, stones fitted together building this thing on the foundation and the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, and the apostles are the foundation so uh, this supreme evidence that one is a believer is the fact that we love one another. Paul said that this was the goal of his instruction, was that we love one another. And its virtue sums up all the other virtues, this brotherly kindness, this brotherly love. And uh, anyone who loves will possess the other qualities. And actually, the false teachers, which we will get to in chapter 2 of Second Peter, uh, we're lacking in this, and we will see that, that they are described as not loving. Charles Ryrie, remember, I need to remind you and, and remind you that even though these are an imperative command, these eight qualities or character traits, 
They're based on our position in Christ in verses 3 through 4. Charles Ryrie writes that when we exhibit and develop these traits in our lives, then we are bearing fruit. Primarily, these are character traits, not activities, although if the Christ-like characteristics are present, then they will surely affect and transform our actions. So again, the question is, is, what is the measurement of your spiritual growth? Can you see spiritual growth? Are you different than you were a year ago, five years ago? Maybe different than you were last week because God is at work in us, sanctifying us, setting apart unto his holiness, rescuing us from the very power of sin. And uh, so the evidences should be there. And so we come to this seventh characteristic, brotherly kindness. And we're going to do a little bit of a survey today. Remember the apostle Peter wrote the first letter, 1 Peter, to warn the church of external persecution, external opposition. Second Peter is written uh, to warn the church and to encourage the church in the midst of internal opposition, in the midst of false teachers who are invading the church in the first century as well as in the 21st century. Uh, there are many false teachers out there. And so Peter reminds us because of the spiritual endowment, the position we have, it should affect our condition how we live out the Christian life. Christian faith covers not only our attitudes about our problems, but also about people that are around us. And Peter turns to our relationship with other believers, with other Christians. I go back to, it seems like any time there's upheaval in the church, uh, personality problems, it seems to be traced back to the fact that people do not understand their salvation, what they've been saved from, and to and they don't understand the purpose and the mechanism called the church. And so Peter is helping us. And this word that's translated brotherly kindness or brotherly love is that one Greek word that's a a combination called Philadelphia. And it becomes very familiar to to us. It's a common term for family unit relationships. That's the idea. In In the New Testament, it is the only place in literature where it's found outside the context of the home. Uh, we have lost uh, the power or the shock value of this word because if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it before and you've heard messages on these passages. And yet to the first century Greek and Jewish person, it was shocking to hear Peter say that uh, you have to have this kind of care, this brotherly kindness, this brotherly love with those outside of your family that you are connected, vitally connected. It was for this common relationship. And so perhaps our understanding has dimmed. We've become too familiar with uh, the Bible, but it does not lose the reality when Peter in chapter 1, verse 10, calls Christians my brothers. He means it. Uh, False teachers show no love for God's family. They do not show brotherly love. They do harm in chapter 2, verse 13. They entice people for bad ends. In the end, they destroy God's people, chapter 2, verse 1, which we will get to. So this word, Philadelphia, only occurs five times in the New Testament. And uh, the concept appears uh, throughout Scripture, but that particular word, if you were to do a word study, get your strongest concordance out, you'd look up this word, see the other occurrences, and there would be five of them. Paul uses it in Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. 
Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Uh, That same word is used there. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews was that God used. Uh, That's an ongoing debate. Uh, I tend to side that Paul wrote Hebrews, but uh, we'll know when we get to heaven. In Hebrews 13.1, let love of the brethren continue. That same Philadelphia word. It, here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, or excuse me, in 1 Peter 1.22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, uh, frequently love one another from the heart. The word brethren also includes feminine, so the brethren and the sisters too, okay? And... Uh, so we are to love one another. And then here in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 7, uh, the word occur, occurs twice as Peter is laying it out here in these character qualities. There's a similar word in First Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that means loving one's brother, a little bit different word. So, however, the idea of brotherly love is much bigger. Brotherly kindness is much bigger than just these five occurrences of this particular Greek word. And so we're going to do a quick survey of the Old and New Testament to see what these, just some of these aspects of what it means to love one another. And so we're going to do a brief survey because it's more extensive, the concept in Scripture, than just these five occurrences of that word. In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words that are used uh, that have the full range of the ideas associated with Philadelphia. And uh, one of the Hebrew words is chesed, which is translated loving kindness. It's often mentioned of God's covenantal love for his people, the nation Israel, the people of Israel, or the Jewish people. And uh, it's probably the closest correspondence in the Old Testament to our word grace in the New Testament. And so it's that idea is also used uh, of people in a covenant kind of love with one another. Uh, in that day and age, if we lived in Old Testament times and if we were Jewish, uh, we would be called to love upon people in this brotherly kindness in many different uh, situations, but primarily within our nation, within our ethnic or racial group. Uh, in uh, our Proverbs ten twelve, we're to love friends as a friend. In other words, we have a good friend, so we're called upon to love one another. Hatred stirs up strife, Proverbs 10, 12, but love covers all transgressions. Another one is between slaves and masters in Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15. A third type uh, or third situation is with our neighbors, uh, Leviticus 19, 18. There it says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, a direct commandment from God himself to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people. And so uh, there is a primary, a central passage, a primary passage uh, to the sons of your people, meaning other Jewish people. Also to pray or to love the poor and the unfortunate, Proverbs 14, 21. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker but he was gracious to the needy honors him. We can trace throughout Scripture that God has great concern for those who are poor and needy. We can trace that out uh, pretty clearly. The fifth uh, (coughs) time is is especially significant is the command to love the stranger and the foreigner. Remember, Israel was, and they knew it, was God's chosen race, his people, his nation. 
And uh, sadly, in many cases, it resulted in a pride and a looking down upon all of their neighbors. And yet God commanded them clear back in Leviticus 19.34, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Uh, Also Deuteronomy 10.19, So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Our calling is not ethnically or racially or nationally limited. You understand that? In the church, we are transnational, transethnic, transracial. Everybody is welcome. And so our calling, our love for one another is not limited to ethnic, racial, or national, national entities. We're in the midst, and we read about it all the time. Our lives are probably not touched much by it. <clears throat> the refugee crisis in the Middle East, uh, that is just the refugees pouring into Europe and uh, in the Middle East there. And I've read a lot of, uh, you know, and in, the, in election season, we listen to all this stuff that's being said by candidates and uh, proposed solutions. And we as Christians, when we think about our responsibility of restraining evil, Yes, some refugees may have other agendas and motives, as we have seen, and yet the vast many of them are just looking for a place of safety and security. So what is our responsibility? Uh, in Colossians one twenty one, we see in the New Testament here, is the principle remains that uh, uh, God is calling upon us to care for those who need care. In verse 21, uh, or verse 20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. No, I, let me get the right one. I'm in chapter 2. Okay, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, let yet he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Also Romans 5.10, a clear declaration that we were refugees. We were in need of a place of safety and security, and God has provided that. And if we are Christ-like, we will respond in those issues. No matter what your political views or your sociological views, your Christian view should trump that based upon the word of God applied in your life, how we respond to those in deep need. Uh, the sixth uh, standard presented in the Old Testament is the love relationship between people in the context of a covenant. Remember, a covenant is an agreement. And, of course, the primary, the most beautiful one we see is between David and Saul's son, Jonathan, in 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 3. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. There was a covenantal agreement. Actually, and that's when we have a wedding here. It's actually a picture of a couple covenanting together uh, that they before God and before his witnesses, the people, the body of Christ, that they are going to be in love and stay married their whole lives. It's that type and a serious covenant. So we see a brief survey of the Old Testament. There is a standard presented. It's primarily Uh, in Israel anyway, and in God's working with Israel, Jewish to Jewish, primarily, even though there are other examples of their call to be something more than that. And so in in the New Testament, though, this concept of brother kindness expands to the whole world. 
in Scripture, we see that revelation, God's revelation to us is progressive. It's not just one shot at one time, but it's progressive. So the New Testament expands upon the Old Testament principles and becomes clearer to us. Now, we are blessed with the fact of 2020 hindsight, and we have the completed Word of God in our hands in our own language. And actually, we knew more. We know more. Uh, we have more information than Abraham or David, or Isaiah, <clears throat> John the baptizer. Uh, we have the great privilege of living in this day and age where we have the completed Word of God and we can read back and study what has gone before us. So the teaching is enlarged for us in the New Testament. The New Testament uh, in ancient Christian literature, uh, brotherly love meant to treat others as if they were part of one's own family. This type of love means to be like to like another person and want what is best for that individual. And here we have that word phileo again, and that means to kiss. It basically means to kiss, which shows close friendship. This type of love is never used of love for God or for erotic love or sensual love. It's always for this brotherly family kind of love. We look at Jesus, and he magnifies the concept of loving the brethren for us. Jesus constantly taught his, uh, his uh, followers the principle of brotherly love, and he uh, adds new meaning, new uh, enlarges upon the Old Testament concept. Now, remember, uh, his disciples were Jewish, and they understood uh, the Jewish background, at least. And so this was a very jarring idea that, oh, we have to love the, the Palestinian or the Arab or the Edomite, or, or we have to show brotherly kindness Jesus said he declared in the second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Someone once asked me, uh, what does it mean to love your neighbor as you love yourself? And, of course, it's repeated in husbands to wives, uh, the type of love. And, and I, I believe what it's talking about is the fact that we do take care of ourselves. All of you look pretty well groomed here. You all look like you looked in the mirror this morning. That's a good thing. You didn't scare anybody when you came in. And uh, we take care of ourselves, you know, we brush our teeth, we bathe, we, we feed ourselves, a, a hopefully, a healthy diet and try to take care of us. This is the idea of having that common care that we'd have for ourselves physically with others. And in the parable that uh, Keevan read for us, the parable of the Good Samaritan, he, he explained who our neighbor is. And notice that uh, Jesus said, the one who shows mercy, in other words, the Samaritan, the, the, the half-breed, was the one who showed mercy on the man who had been uh, injured by the robbers. He who shows mercy. And mercy is that ability to not give something to somebody what they deserve. In other words, if they've wronged you, and in our, in our personal justice system, we want what is right. And so we say, I want this to be right. And, uh, and that's, that's a good thing, that inbuilt justice, but yet... There is the aspect of mercy that Jesus Christ extended to you and I, not giving us what we deserve, but extending grace. And so this idea that our neighbor is whoever we're with, whoever we find ourselves with, whether it is in our neighborhood or perhaps in Seattle or wherever we find ourselves. Also, Jesus encouraged forgiveness of the brother. Remember Matthew 18, Peter asked him, how often should I you know, forgive my brother who's offended me? Seven times seven, which, you know, seemed an amazing amount of time to Peter. And Jesus' response, he said, no, 70 times seven. And that's a hyperbole. That means you keep forgiving. You keep forgiving. That's that extension of 
of, of mercy. And also he offered the golden rule as a guide of relating to one's people around him. You know, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, Jesus is quoting out of Leviticus chapter 19. So Jesus magnifies the concept of what it means to love people, to that brotherly love. Paul's contribution, the Apostle Paul, he spoke much of it. He always related it to the community of believers, to the church. He uses the term twice, and I've read these, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, Romans 12, 10. And in both cases, he encouraged us to live peaceably with one another in church. If you've ever been in a church squabble where it gets angry and divisive and ugly, it can make you say, I don't want anything more to do with this thing, this church. And I know some of you have been through that. We all have, I think. And uh, so Paul is encouraging us, telling us that this is Christ-likeness. He underlined the idea of love for the brethren in Galatians 5.14, for the entire law is fulfilled in one statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, he declared, do not owe anyone, owe anyone anything except to love one another. And in 1 Corinthians 8.13, he said, if we cause our weaker brother to stumble, if food causes my brother to fail or fall, he will never eat meat again, so that I don't want to cause my brother to fall. And so he was looking for the betterment, for the good of fellow believers. The Apostle John emphasized in his writing, of course, he is kind of used centrally in this concept of brotherly love, brotherly kindness. And he wrote in John 13, quoting Jesus, that Jesus gave a new commandment that you should love one another. The idea is repeated in John's gospel in in, uh, chapter 17. And in a series of emphatic statements on brotherly love in First and Second John are designed to show us the centrality of the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want a good declaration of what it means for brother love, go to First John. John will enlighten your eyes. And, of course, then there is Peter's edition, the Apostle Peter here, but also Hebrews. Uh, we are to, he connects it, the writer of Hebrews, who God, whoever God used for that, the hospitality with strangers in Hebrews 13. Let the love of the brethren continue is the command. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. I don't know how that works out. I'm just just reminded of the declaration of Scripture that I trust that uh, it could really happen. 1 Peter 1.22, since you in, in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a Sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And, of course, here in Second Peter 1, 7, one of these character traits, as Peter begins to wrap up this list of eight traits, that all Christians, if you're growing in the Spirit, if you're growing in your Christianity, it should become evident in your life. And so one evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life is the fact of this character trait of brotherly kindness, uh, that you deal with issues as best as possible, and you love the brothers. Uh, Tertullian of Carthage was an early Christian writer, and uh, he wrote in Latin primarily, and he declared that the one thing that converted him to Christianity was not the arguments that the Christians gave him because he could find a counterpoint for every argument they would present. But he writes, They demonstrated something I did not have. The thing that converted me to Christianity was the way they loved each other. 
And I think that is so true. The church has got a bad reputation. You know, people have been hurt. They leave. They don't come back. And yet, that is the one thing that goes beyond just arguing about what the faith is about. It's interesting, and I was reading the crucifixion account in Matthew 27, 35, and 36. It talks about the soldiers, and they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And it makes this, there's this phrase in that verse. It says, and then they sat down and watched him there. They sat down and watched him there at the crucifixion. And like those Roman soldiers, maybe many of us have lapsed into a life of inaction. The cross of Christ is more than just a showcase or an exhibit to arouse our curiosity. It is really a clarion call to action, commitment, and discipleship. You know, perhaps your impact upon the issue of abortion and euthanasia on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is perhaps you are called to be a part of the political system. Maybe there is a future president of the United States sitting in this very building right now. We don't know. And uh, maybe there is somebody like William Wilberforce in the British Empire who was used mightily his whole life. Uh, God used him to eradicate the, 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 the horror of slavery in the British Empire. He didn't even live to see the results, but he worked his whole life for it in Parliament. Maybe somebody like that here. Uh, because uh, God is calling each one of us to a different response. At least in our country, we have the stewardship of voting. You know, it's supposed to be a representational government, and uh, but we can do much here that many other believers in other countries cannot do. And so we don't want to just sit and look at the cross of Christ, but remember that it is a call to action, commitment, and discipleship. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for the fact that you raise up people, you engift them, you empower them for different aspects of life on this earth. And Lord, we thank you for those who serve in the political arena, who are believers, and who in their integrity uh, can only do what they can do under the power of the Holy Spirit. And also, Lord, whether it's in the world of medicine, in education, uh, perhaps in uh, working in government in another capacity or in our universities or in our Christian colleges or Christian schools. Lord, we pray that each one of us would recognize our call to action and that we would exercise what you allow us to, that we would be dependent upon your Holy Spirit for wisdom, for winsomeness as we talk to others who may not share our views of our society, of our culture. And we praise you, Lord, that you will give us the words to say. I thank you for each one here. Each one is a precious person who is uh, just uh, created by you and uh, given uh, this God spark. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would just use us to your honor and glory, however you would. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.